you know, Matt, if I ask you this question, what would be the biggest barrier to you choosing a non-alcoholic beer? What would your answer to that be? Oh, uh, the, the lack of alcohol. <laughs> you, you're always so obtuse. What would your second? What would your second answer be, Matt? Flavor. Correct. Exactly. Well, you got a second time around. That was good. Yeah, we got there. So. <laughs> okay. Thanks to Cry Malt, this is Brews Newsweek. I'm Matt Kirkegaard, and this week there's no Pete Mitchum. I am flying solo. It's been a busy week for Pete and I, and we just didn't make time to uh, have a chat together, let alone arrange someone else to join us. But I did manage to record a couple of interviews about news items that flesh them out a little bit more. So the news will take a different format this week. First up, I chat with Anton Spitalak from Tribe Brewing about Tribe's announcement this week that it has signed an agreement with Pabst Blue Ribbon, or PBR. It's an interesting one. Anton and his family formed Brewpack in 2012 when they acquired the assets of collapsed contract brewer Australian Independent Brewers. Later, the business added its proprietary brand Stockade and this year changed its name to Tribe when it took on investment from Melbourne-based private equity firm Advent Partners to fund its current expansion plans. And Pabst Blue Ribbon, which it's now brewing, is a venerable old beer brand that has been resurrected as an ironic alternative to the US mainstream staples. The brand is owned by Eugene Kashper and private equity investor TSG Partners, which also happens to own 23% of Scottish brewery Brewdog. The Paps brand, which is currently contract brewed by SAB Miller in the US, won Large Brewing Company of the Year at the 2016 Great American Beer Festival and took gold for Best American Style Lager. It's an interesting move for Tribe, and this is a robust chat with Anton. Then we look at alcohol-free beer. As this week, CUB announced it has launched Carlton Zero, a beer with functionally no alcohol. While Australia is arguably the king of mid-strength beer, and zero-alcohol beers are a growing trend in Europe, the US and Canada, I'm not convinced that there is a market for them here. I've been hearing whispers for years now that CUB have been looking into this beer, and even though the media release tells us that beer lovers have told CUB that they want the option of non-alcoholic beer that actually tastes like beer, I need some convincing. So I speak with two old friends from CUB, beverage innovation brewer Scott Vincent, who worked on the development of the beer, and I learn about how a non-alcohol beer is made while still retaining flavour. And then I chat with Tim Avadia, CUB's Director of Classic Brands and Local Premium, about why they think there's a market for it at all. This show is a little different from normal, but this is also why I love the conversation you can have over a podcast rather than the printed story. Some of the things that you'll hear during this podcast have turned up as quotes in articles, but this is the full version of those chats. I hope you enjoy the bruise news of the week. Here's Anton Spitalak. Talking PBR. Anton Spidalek, welcome back to Radio Brews News, mate. This is people are going to start thinking that we're uh, your sponsor us or something. Oh, yeah, yes, that would be that would be awkward, wouldn't it? <laughs> so, well, well, we haven't spoken to you very much over the three or four years you've, you've sponsored us, but uh, last time we just caught up uh, about everything Tribe, but this week uh, you've announced that uh, Tribe Breweries is 
going to be producing PBR or perhaps Blue Ribbon under contract? Yeah, once we get gold and rocking and rolling later in the year, we're looking forward to welcoming the product into the tribe. It's going to be pretty cool. Great beer and cool people over there. So maybe uh, tell us a little bit about how that conversation uh, with PBR came about. It's funny because you know we we saw in our portfolio of beers and what we're offering to marketplace. Obviously, we've got lots of cool, innovative, exciting beers. We make barrel-aged imperial stouts, and with the Mornington Partnership now, there's a whole host and slew of cool stuff that they're always bringing to marketplace. But you know, what a lot of a lot of people have been asking us as we're approaching a more mature portfolio is, well, what, what are you guys doing in the lager side? Like, you know, do you have a really cool sessionable lager that we can create that that we can access? And the challenge for us is that we, you know, although Mornington's got a fantastic lager and dual hoppy lager for stockade, you know, like they they can be a bit crafty. So sometimes in that sessionable category, they can kind of find their way into, into the craft tap side of things and people were, were pressing us for a solution that was a bit broader. And you know, to be honest, that had been a kind of puzzle in my mind that was, you know, had a marker on, hey, got to think about how we approach that as a brewery. And then that kind of you know, got washed to the side with all the other nonsense that's been going on for the last six months for us. And then it's funny because we had a, we had a connection through to PBR through one of our team. There's actually a lot of Aussies who are working at PBR HQ over in California. And, um, and he said, hey, by the way, you know, you know, have you ever heard of Pass Blue Ribbon? And I had said, man, that's a really cool beer. I was drinking a lot of that when I was in college in Texas, and then I'd seen how it had this amazing resurgence through that you know, same community of kind of young and experiential beer drinkers who were really flocking to craft when I was living in New York. And I said, yeah, I love the brand. And, you know, those, those guys have somehow managed to pull off a pretty retro vibe in you know in that in that rather boring beer category of of the US mainstream. Like it's probably the only brand that's got good clout and in the beer's pretty good. And he said, Hey, let's have a chat to them. So next thing you know, we're on the, you know we're on a call with these guys, and you know they were looking for a new partner, having their historical partner um, have just kind of wound up in in Victoria, and one thing led to another. We talked about you know who we are, what we're doing. We discovered that they're actually the largest independent brewery over in the US. This has been amazing. There's good personal connection and. Next thing you know, we're talking about how we can get their project to Australia. So it was a pretty organic conversation. It, it wasn't it wasn't done so via a you know a super targeted hunt, but we we would have been looking for additions to our portfolio in this regard eventually anyway. It just kind of came along at a very good time. You just described it as a the, the largest independent brewery in in the US, but the, the reality is that it's a, a brand more than a brewery, isn't it? Yes, correct. They don't actually run their own breweries. They have they have a contract brewing relationship with the majority of their of their partners globally. So yes, you're right. It's um largest independent beer brand. I think is how I characterise it on the press release. You're right. They don't they don't run their own brewery. They were in the news recently because I think Miller Coors makes the beer for them under license in the US, and there's some suggestion that that relationship is going to finish in 2020 because Miller Coors doesn't have uh, uh, capacity anymore. Um, does that, does that create further opportunities for you? Could we potentially be making Australian paps to send over to the US? Is that the question? I, I guess so, yeah. That would be amazing. To be honest with you, Matt, I would love that. They make a ton of beer, so I would be absolutely thrilled with the chance. Oh, look, I, it's hard for me. I don't really know the full backdrop of what they're doing in, in the US. For us, our kind of relationship is, is fairly focused in the in the, Australian, in the Australian region today, and there could be some other regional opportunities for us to explore over time, but they're all very early. But yeah, I mean, I think that there's always a, a challenge in the US with some of these larger brands and, and where they find homes. But 
ultimately that's a that's a journey that I think they're going to have to walk. And I doubt that we'd be playing an active role in servicing that marketplace for a brewery here. But look, opportunities are opportunities. And if they came our way, we'd be, we'd be keen to take them. It, it's an interesting one as well because I believe that the brand is owned by the same uh, private equity uh, group that own that owns a share of BrewDog. Is that correct? Yeah, they've got an ownership structure that's pretty broad. So they've got they they do have some. Their eventual owner on at least a piece of it is a foreign owner, so it's not an American group. And I know that in their portfolio, there's a couple of other food and drink uh, products that are in there. But, I mean, for us, our team that we deal with and our relationship is really just focused on PAPS. And although the holding company has access to a lot of other brands and IP, for now, all we're doing is just focusing on the PAPS product, although they do work with Old Milwaukee, and I think they have some relationship with Arizona Iced Tea. But for us, we're, we're exclusively on the PAPS side. It's an interesting uh, one, I guess, because I mean, you guys have recently taken private equity investment yourselves, uh, which has allowed you to uh, you know, build the Goulburn Brewery and uh, also facilitate the merger with uh, Mornington. Does this, uh, like a, a beer that you described as being an easy drinking lager, um, does that sort of create difficulties around uh the, the, the tribe brand, um, you know, Mornington's a very craft-driven brewery. You've got your own uh, very craft uh, brand, but then the brand that you brew under license tend to be, you know, a little bit less public um, in that there's not the same disclosure for, for the brands. And so you can pretty much brew anything, uh, you know, a, a, as a contract brand without affecting the, the, the tribe brand. But this is one that you're very clearly uh, brewing a mainstream beer um, under your business model does that sort of are you worried about how that affects the the business and then the the, the craft brands that you brew yeah i think that for us trying to find the right balance between our craft credentials and where we've come from and then creating a, a brewery model which both identifies with who we are as people and allows us to grow as a brewery I mean, that's a that's a, a, a balance beam that we're pretty well used to walking over the last couple of years. You know, I mean, if you look at where Tribe came from, its original roots and brew pack, I mean, that would be kind of far, you know, far left on the craft schedule compared to where Mornington had been operating. But for us, as we kind of grow as a business and we look at, well, where do we want to play in the long run? Where do we want to make sure that we're exciting consumers? What access we want to give? We kind of have to play in the areas that we think best represent where the opportunities are and where it speaks to us. And I think that perhaps is kind of unique in that regard because their 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 brand values, and although they're one of the you know very old breweries started in 1844, very old brand, you know, they've got a very youthful brand image. So I think that some other brands in that kind of mainstream lager space probably would have been less of a fit for us because they don't have that same customer appeal they don't have the same drinker appeal but you'll find a pbr tap hopefully a year from now in exactly the same venues that are kind of embracing craft because they're looking for that kind of you know something that's an easier drinking lager product and they're and they're not seeing it necessarily directly represented in the in the in the australian craft side there's some great nostalgia and kind of american beer values brand values inside the Paps beer. So I kind of feel like for us, it's, it's a way better fit than a lot of those other mainstream beers would have been. And that's one of the reasons why we were so keen on exploring it to begin with. I mean, we haven't, like I said, we haven't looked into a lot of licensing overseas deals yet in our, in our journey, but this one seems as if it was a pretty good fit.
When you describe it as a young brand, I mean, it, it's. Uh, I remember reading about it seven, eight years ago when it was just starting to become cool and had that, uh, you know, ironic. It was so unfashionable that it was seized on as something that you could drink to mark yourself out as being, you know, you, you drink it ironically and uh, you know, often labelled as the, the the hipster beer. But it was a very yeah. much a, a mainstream beer that was. Uh, you know, consumed ironically instead of maybe Budweiser, which is as mainstream a- a- as you get. So is it a beer that's built around marketing or is it a beer that's built around the liquid? It's a great question. I mean, I, and again, I kind of, it goes back to that, that concept. I mean, you ask like why, right? If you look at their core brand values, it's a, it's a beer for doers. You know, it's, it's a beer to be enjoyed. It's a beer that, that kind of, that speaks to counterculture, to art, to music. So in some ways, I feel like, yes, they've got very strong brand values associated with that beer, but you can't have a beer that's been around for 170 years unless you've got a really good liquid. So for us, yes, I feel like, you know, when you're talking to someone who's a craft beer aficionado, as, as you are, it's always, it's always interesting because, you know, the, the loudest volume and the loudest amplitude on a, on, a, on a beer's flavor and characters obviously garners a certain amount of attention and a certain amount of respect in a, in a very crowded marketplace. But what we see too is that people sometimes they just want an opportunity to drink something sessionable. They want an opportunity to enjoy a beer which doesn't blow their taste buds out of their mouth. So how we can kind of cater to that, you know, as a as a as a brewery is important for us. So I kind of feel like it's both of those both of those things. Yes, they have amazing brand value that has managed to strike exactly at the core at the, at the core of where craft beer is moving today, and exactly the same divey bars, exactly the same kind of cool places to be seen. But then at the same time, they've kind of got a beer which is sessionable and good. So we look at both things, and I think they've managed to pull it off where a lot of others haven't. I mean, you know, that, that whole category of beer has been in decline for quite a while, and yet these guys are consistently growing. So obviously they've got a pretty good recipe for success on both fronts. Yeah, it's interesting that you call in the history of the brand, but also then to say the you know the, the liquid is obviously fairly good because the liquid that we're drinking now isn't the liquid we, that uh, you know PBR drinkers were drinking 20 years ago or 130 years ago, um, because brewing techniques, ingredients, um, and even uh, recipes are, are, are tweaked. Um, and yet, you know, whenever CUB talks about um, Crown Lager, for example, they talk about you know the, the history of the beer as if the beer that we're drinking today is the same beer that we drank um, 50 years ago. But people are really drinking the brand with a beer like PBR, not the liquid, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, I, and I think if you if you look across the whole beer spectrum, and let's take out some of the most uh, rigid and you know great history European breweries. So there, I'm sure that there are some. Belgian Trappist beers that are made exactly the same way as they were, you know, 150 years ago. Like that, that probably happens. But even modern craft. I mean, if you look at where we are today on on our portfolio of beers, you know, we're we're making tweaks based off seasonal differences in ingredients, based off you know where the hops are coming out at, where those alpha acids are being delivered at on a timeline basis. So that beer itself is is constantly shifting over a period of just a year. Although we try and keep it as consistent as we can for our client, for our customers. Um, I think that from a perspective of, of, of PBR, yeah, it's, it's probably in exactly the same position. One of the key differences that Australian drinkers will enjoy over the next 12 months as we, manuf- as we brew the beer locally is that they'll have a fresh beer. Well, at the moment, they're taking beer that's been imported. So it's kind of, for us, if you have, there is a certain flavour delight associated when you have your first fresh, amazing lager. 
even if you're kind of used to the IPAs and you're used to the double imperial stouts or what have you. And that delivery of that is one of the key reasons why Pabst was keen on working with us because they'd had a bunch of distribution partners over the years here in Australia, but they were really looking for someone that could kind of deliver a better liquid to consumer. And that's essentially what we hope we can do when we kind of start brewing this stuff locally. Is it an all malt beer or is it an adjunct beer um, as a mainstream lager? Yeah, Dave, it's funny. They have actually a, a pretty strict recipe criteria on, on how they work. And it does have, they have a lot of malts in it. There are some adjuncts, some adjuncts that aren't that common in the Australian market. So stuff that we have to kind of work with them and say, hey, you know, you know where exactly are we going to find, you know, this, how do we marry your heritage? How do we marry your recipe values with what the capabilities here in Australia? And we're in no rush to make that beer here because ultimately they've got a pretty strict criteria on how we license manufacturers. So it'll take some time, but obviously we're hoping we can do it sooner rather than later. But it, it has us having to solve a whole bunch of issues around where we get our great supply chain that's consistent and high quality and how we ma- manage the outcome to make sure the beer is exactly the way that perhaps guys want it. You talk about that beer drinkers, you know, even craft beer drinkers, want a sessionable beer, um, and that's uh, undoubtedly the case. And that's, I think, why we've seen the rise of uh, you know, Stonewood Pacific Ale and the, 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 all of the... Um, you know, those light tropical Pacific Ale style beers that are around about 20 IBUs, slightly tropical and fruity and very refreshing. But wasn't one of the promises that the, you know, for want of a better expression, beer revolution, um, wasn't one of the promises of that, that we were going to have greater diversity than the, the, the what are sometimes called industrial lagers? Yeah. I mean, that's, um, it's a good point. The, I guess for us, I mean, if there is a mix of products that's going to be enjoyed in the marketplace, then there's a mix of products that we're going to, we are going to brew. Because for us, as our platform on Tribe is concerned, we're a pretty good reflection of what the market wants at any given period of time. And we cater to that kind of front end of the market due to our history and craft more than anything else. So I kind of feel like, you know, while from a macro perspective, you're, you know, you're pretty much spot on in that you know, people are flavor hunting, people are experience hunting, Ultimately, what we're delivering to them through our portfolio of products is, in some instances, that next, you know, double New England IPA or a barrel-aged stout or a crazy, you know, fresh hop pale ale. But then if, if those people are also rotating in and out of brands that they connect with, beers and styles that they connect with, which might be not on the most aggressive end of the crafty scale, like stuff like, you know, really good premium lagers, really good international lagers, that's kind of stuff that we'll end up making. So I don't know whether or not for us that's against the, the greater trend because for us, if they're drinking different and if they're experiencing something different, they're essentially finding their way into our wheelhouse. And I think this product fits pretty, pretty well into that category. And yes, that's a concept of finding their way into a cool brand which speaks to who they, what they are, drinking a really cool, sessionable, honest-made beer. That's kind of where we play. So I'm, I'm, I'm pretty happy with it. The brewery is going to be up and running uh, before the end of the year. So are you going to be distributing it before then or are you going to be uh, only brewing it once you brew it fresh uh, later in the year with the new brewery? Yeah, well, like we'll, we will work with some imported product between now and then. They have some here in Australia already and there's, you know, there's been a few. It's been reasonably distributed is what I'd say in the past, but nothing has you know, really been put through a, kind of, you know, a big network. So it's, it's pretty early days in the, in the, in the PAPS journey. So we, we'll look to use imported product to kind of get us going. And there's already some here in Australia that will take over. And then as soon as we can find the right recipe, keep the guys over in the States happy and, and, and find the right outcome for us in Australia, we'd love to make it locally. And we think that the drinkers will really enjoy it. And will we see it on tap at the uh, Stockade Barrel Room? Yeah, I'm not sure yet. I think that we'll have to, I mean, I, I 
I don't, you know, it's a great question. I haven't really thought of it. You know, we've got, we've got obviously as we mature as a business and as we get more consumer facing outlets, we've got to think about how we present our diverse offering. And so I guess, you know, from a perspective of, of, of what do people want to drink and how do we service that need directly? I think that we could put all of our products in each of our outlets, you know, put stockade beers, put, you know, gluten-free beers, put perhaps in a, in, in Stockade's barrel room, but we've got to think about what experience that we're pushing when we go there, when people go there, like what are they looking for and what are the right products that mix into that? I think over time that probably will evolve, but for today it probably won't be there. Firstly, we don't have draft beer today, so we need to get our kind of recipe right before we do that, but when we do, we'll think about it. Anton Spitalak, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Brews News, and I look forward to drinking a fresh PBR when, uh, when you do start brewing it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I look forward to giving you one. And that was Anton Spitalak from Tribe Breweries. Now on to alcohol-free beer. Here's Scott Vincent to describe what it is and how it's made. Scott Vincent, welcome back to Radio Brews News. It's been uh, uh, far too long. It has. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me back. <laughs> Mate, the, we're talking this time. This uh, week, CUB has announced the release of Carlton Zero, a zero uh, percent alcohol beer and it, it's one of those things that once you get past the headlines of uh, having no alcohol uh, it, it's quite an interesting process how you can have beer flavors without the almost necessary byproduct of brewing which is alcohol um, so maybe you can tell us a little bit about the development of uh, Carlton Zero and the, the how it's made to taste like beer but not have alcohol in yeah I'd love to Matt it's so it's been a pretty exciting uh, journey for us. This is our first foray into, you know, essentially what we call zero zero um, alcohol beer, and we spent, you know, quite a lot of uh, time and effort to produce this product, and quite a lot of development time as well. So the, I think for us, the secret um, has been, or the efforts we really put in, is is to getting uh, the product and brewing the product to a very similar manner um, to a standard beer in the brew house and fermentation so that you do end up with uh, a, a fully fermented product, albeit at a lower alcohol, it's about 4 or 5%. And then we've worked with uh, companies that have supplied quite um, clever technology and uh, efficient technology to dealkalize the beer. And um, and then what we've ended up with is is quite a pleasing product because they have been around for many years, as you know, and and as a brewer and I suppose as a, as a beer lover, you've always, I've always kind of said, well, I'll have a crack at these and see what they're like. And I can tell you they've come a long way in 20 years that I've been brewing. So, and we're with Carlton Zero, we've I think we've ended up with quite a nice product. And yeah, so it just gives uh, beer lovers an opportunity to maybe have a, uh, a zero alcohol beer when uh, otherwise they'd uh, go without. Okay, Which so is a, a bit of a bonus. You, you talked a little bit about the the, the general process. Um, there, there are a couple of different ways to to make a beer and then remove the alcohol. Um, one is to essentially uh, evaporate the alcohol off uh, using heat, and uh, you know I, I believe that um, you know pressure can be used to lower the temperatures. Uh, at which that's done, and another one is reverse osmosis that's used. Um, how how is uh, Carlton Zero brewed is is it brewed as a beer and then the alcohol is removed or is there another technique that's used? So yeah, there's even there's even more techniques too where you can use different strains of yeast that um, don't produce much alcohol at all and and so there's yeah there's multiple ways. So 
we, we as a business looked at a lot of them um, and, and what we ended up with doing is, is working on using brewing a beer that made normal, you know, say sales gravity style alcohol about 4 or 5% and then we've introduced it into, as, as you mentioned, a, um, a column or um, a piece of kit that allows us to uh, warm the beer and then de-alcoholise it um, at, at, um, at lower pressures. And uh, that just removes the, the, the ethanol from the beer, and, and what we do is we recollect the beer, um, and and that that is what we use to make uh, the final product. And it's just the column itself allows us to strip, remove the alcohol, and but maintain the beer. But it, it relies on the, and I'm not a scientist uh, or a brewer, but it, it it relies on the boiling point for alcohol being lower than the liquid that holds it. Essentially, is that correct? That. That's absolutely correct. Yeah, so it's the old story of, um, you know, the higher you get, um, you know, the the lower the boiling point of um, liquids become. So if you made a cup of tea at, um, you know, the sea level, it, you know, we all kind of know as water boils at about 100 degrees, depending on what's in it. Um, and then if you went up to the top of Everest, obviously it's less pressure, so therefore the water temperature boils at a, a lower temperature because there's less pressure. Uh, and so that's exactly what you're trying to mimic. So you pull a bit of a vacuum on this column, which reduces the pressure, and therefore it, it boils at lower temperatures. And ethanol itself actually flashes off or boils off uh, lower than water again. So and that, that's so you, you, you use that um, those principles to assist you in getting the ethanol out at, at lower temperatures than you'd, you'd normally normally use. So instead of raising it to 100 and flashing it off, you, you don't need to raise it quite as high, nowhere near as high, about half that temperature. And, and from a brewer's perspective, does that uh, change the flavour? There, there's a lot of debate about whether you know, pasteurisation, which heats beer up as well, has an impact on, on the temperature of beer. Uh, do, does this process affect the beer and do you have to uh, do anything post you know uh, process to reflavor the beer or you know sort of in, ensure that the flavors are, are still there yeah so the advantage of uh, using the lower temperatures helps reduce that effect now obviously if you taste this product against a, a normal beer there's there's a difference if you do a one-to-one comparison um, and that is caused by the you know the dealkalization process but the advantage of using the lower temperatures really works in your favor and uh, and then that gives us quite a good base product to do. And, and then what we do need to do then is um, use next. Sometimes we replace those top notes with hop extracts and things like that to, to help us get back back some of those really top flavours that we lose. And, and I know that with some of the uh, you know, some of the, the, the lighter flavoured beers, like the, the, the low-carb beers, they're often uh, sort of made at a higher gravity uh, because the, that – Higher gravity capture, captures a lot more of the esters up front. That when you do reduce the the, the body of the beer, you, you capture a little bit more flavour in it. Are, are those techniques used, or does the heating process actually? Yes, yeah. So that's that's where we've we've uh, I think we spent a lot of time and effort is is working on the way the beer is made in the brew house and fermentation, so that we the product that we're left with is in the best best possible uh, condition, so that we can. What we, what we end up tasting is, is 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 quite palatable and quite enjoyable, and that's where that's what the secret is is to to kind of really to work on on what we do in the brew house and the fermentation to produce a nice tasting beer at the end of the day. And that's a big departure from from just not making a uh, you know a, a resting fermentation or not producing much ethanol. And that's I think that's the big difference that we've found. 
And I guess that's the big challenge. You, you, you did mention some of the uh, beers that are made using a yeast strain that doesn't throw off a, as much alcohol. And I think that's uh, the way that the Cooper's Birrell is made. But it's I, I've always found some of those beers a little bit too sweet um, because they don't fully ferment out. Um, and, and making a beer like Carlton Zero would be a, a, a challenge, I'd imagine, because alcohol is a byproduct of this thing that we love about beer. Um, or, you know, the, the flavour aspects of beer. Yeah, that's right. And I think you have to be realistic. And that's what we've done is, is if you did a direct comparison between one-to-one against a beer, you, I, th- I think most beer lovers are always going to tend towards having a traditional style of beer, whether it be a hoppy one or a lager or whatever. They'll mostly have that preference to say, you know, um, I've, I've, this, is, this is my preference, you know, because it does have the alcohol. It gives you that complexity of palate. But what it does do, and especially with the way we've made this, is it's a good product in its own right. Um, and if you, you know, treat it as, as exactly that, it, is, it gives you an opportunity or gives you choice, then I think most people will be quite pleasantly surprised at how well it, how good it tastes. Um, and, but you're right about the ethanol. It does give you a complexity and a, and a depth of character in our beers and, and, and makes them very attractive to us. And this might be a question, uh, I believe I'm going to be speaking to Tim Avadia about it as well to get some of the consumer insights um, behind the beer, but you know, I, I've always felt that if it wasn't for the alcohol, you'd probably drink something else other than beer. Do you think there is a demand for uh, you know, a, a beer that doesn't have alcohol in? Yeah, I think there is. It's a tough question because you know, you're right, would, would people necessarily have learnt to drink beer uh, if there wasn't alcohol there, uh, and so that's that's an interesting question, um, because it is a you know bitterness is a learned flavour to appreciate, um, and it's generally you know that comp- that that complexity with with alcohol that that drives that enjoyment once you actually ach- achieve that understanding of of bitterness and 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 beer flavour. What we do know is that where this product has been launched around the world, it's done well. So. It will be interesting to see how it's how it's accepted in Australia. So, from our experiences overseas and the data we've seen overseas, yeah, the the once it's actually been launched, it's it's actually done really well. So, it's found found a market, a niche that people say, yeah, this is this is a product that I can have. Um, when either um, I wouldn't drink beer at all, or, or um, I may only have you know one beer, um, and if you're driving or something along those lines, or where you wouldn't normally have a wish to have a beer. So. That's what we're seeing overseas, and, and Tim will definitely go into that in greater detail for you. This has been a product that the, the, the big breweries have been looking at, and they've been keeping an eye on the growth in, in Europe for a while. But I'd, you know, I sort of sit back and look at places like Germany, where I think they have a very different drinking culture um, to, uh, to, to Australia. Um, and I, I, this might be unfair to Australians, but I think in Germany they appreciate the flavour of beer as much as they appreciate the alcohol, whereas in, in Australia it's been a little bit more um, the alcohol and the flavour is, a, a, as you said, a learned <laughs> characteristic. Um, and I just, yeah, so it'll, mm. it'll be fascinating to see. Are, are they the countries that you've seen the, the, the growth in? Uh, yeah, in, in Europe it's definitely... Um Definitely a big market because I, I remember um, you know, first time I went there, there was quite a lot of those beers readily available in restaurants and and pubs and things like that, which I found quite surprising. Mm. Coming from Australia, 
coming through. <laughs> so, but, yeah. And, and that, that's what, yeah, I, I guess that's where I was going at. Coming from Australia, we're very surprised that people would drink beer without alcohol. And, you know, some of the, whilst we've seen a huge growth in the mid-strength market, that still has alcohol in it. And it's almost been, you know, drink driving laws and some of those things that have seen us willing to accept a lower alcohol. Um, but it's going to be fascinating mm. to see mm. whether mm. there is a market for no alcohol. Well, I think the interesting thing about that is that when you talk to, when I've spoken to other brewers, they find it quite amazing that we've got such a large low and mid-strength kind of market. So they, they find the same thing uh, about our, our market as well. So it's kind of, a, it's just, yeah, it's, I guess it is cultural and it, it's been driven by that change in drink driving laws too has, has pro- propelled that part of the market for us. So they find it quite interesting that we, we have you know, such a big proportion of people willing and, in, and enjoy mid-strength style beers. And, and we've seen a lot of brewers pioneer their um mid-strength beers here to see how they to see how yep. they go yeah yeah i think i think it, to me it's always made sense because of our lifestyle and you know especially in the northern climates when in another part northern parts of the country where it's so warm and one of the criticisms i saw that was leveled yesterday was that this was a beer that was targeted at getting kids basically into beer because it could be sold in supermarkets but you did mention that bitterness is a learned flavor so yeah, I, I, I'm just sort of wondering where the imperative would be or where the interest would be in young people to, to, to drink something that they don't instinctively like when it doesn't have that benefit that sometimes uh, younger drinkers are after. And, and this, is, this is an adult beverage. It's, let's, let's not joke about it. It's an adult beverage. That's the way we're marketing it. And, and that's the way we expect it to be, to be. That's who we expect to be consumed, consumed by. So mm. it's, uh, it's definitely an adult beverage, that's for sure. Yeah, but and because it's, I, I presume it's got uh, bitterness around what the fifteen, yeah. fifteen or so IBU. That's higher than that. It's about, it's actually higher. I think it's eighteen, uh, eighteen, nineteen. Okay, so again, that's very much. So yeah, it's got a reasonable beer. Yeah, um, which again is is the the characteristic that a lot of young people tend not to like over the the, the sweeter um, alka pops. That's correct. That's that's exactly right. So this is definitely like a. It's based at. Beer lovers. It's based for beer lovers to give them options to, you know, to drink. Terrific. Well, Scott Vincent, thank you very much for joining us and talking us through the process of uh, making beer without alcohol. Yes, you're more than welcome. Uh, it's been a fun project to be involved in. And that was beverage innovation brewer Scott Vincent. In the garden, what a garden. Brews News is made possible by Brewpack, Australia's number one craft contract brewer. With over 100 craft beers and ciders on the roster and counting, Brewpack specialises in offering growing craft breweries a home for their packaged and kegged beer, no matter how crafty. Serious about handmade beers, and with an open-door policy, Brewpack's brewers love having passionate, hands-on partners in the brewery. Thinking about craft contract brewing? Think Brewpack. And uh, yes, we thank Brewpack for not only making a whole lot of great craft beers possible, but also for making this podcast possible. As much as I love to celebrate the flavour of beer as its finest quality, I'm not convinced that lager flavour alone is so loved that the slight perception-altering element of alcohol can be removed and still have people flock to it. So here's Tim Avadia to try and convince me that Australians love the flavour of beer so much they're willing to forego that little bit of alcohol. Tim Avadia, welcome back to Radio Brews News. It's been far too long. Thanks, Matt. It's great to be back on the, the program again. Good to hear that you're still championing the, the category and good to be talking to you uh, post the launch of uh, Carbon Zero. 
Well, that's uh, and that's what we want to talk about. We don't always, uh, you know, sort of not every media release that we get is newsworthy, but certainly a beer with no alcohol in uh, that certainly had my interest. Talk me, talk to me about the decision to make a no alcohol beer. Yeah, so I mean, we we hear a lot from consumers, and I think this will resonate with you. You know, people love the taste of beer, right? And, and you know, often we ask, you know, why do you choose certain beverages and you know, people tell us that they love the taste of beer, and the reality is is that you know the alcohol that, that is traditionally associated with this fermented beverage isn't is something that you can have on all occasions. So the inspiration behind Carbon Zero and the whole reason for being is to offer beer lovers an alternative to drink um, that or have the taste and the flavour of beer that they love on occasions where they don't want the alcohol to accompany that, right? So that's really what um, Carlton Zero is about and and tapping into the love that people have for the flavour of beer and expanding that into uh, different occasions where it's not appropriate or not ideal to have um, an alcoholic beverage, right? So that's really where the inspiration for this comes from. Okay, look, I'm willing to buy into, you know, people love the taste of beer, but it's normally associated with, um, you know, alcohol being part of it. And I know that in places like Germany and the um, and, and Central Europe, where there's a slightly different beer culture, we've seen no alcohol beers um, take off. I, I still need to be convinced a little bit that Australian drinkers love the taste of beer so much that they're willing to drink it even when they don't want alcohol. Surely they're going to want something like kombucha or something else, you know, a, a soft drink um, when, when, when they don't want alcohol rather than a beer-flavoured drink that doesn't have alcohol. Well, I mean, based on kind of... I mean, the only thing I'd say to you there is based on pure size, I'd suggest that consumers' taste preference is more for a beer than it is for something like a kombucha, right? Like... In reality, I just think that's a that's a matter of personal personal taste. So, you know, if someone's having, uh, you know, going out for lunch or during the week when they're working, and they've got a choice between and they want a a, a beverage, yeah, you know, a, a beverage that kind of is delivering against a need for refreshment, it then becomes a taste choice. So, you know, what what we believe is that the taste of beer stacks up well versus the alternatives that you've got when you're not looking for an alcoholic beverage. And, um, like, I mean, just like within the alcoholic beverage category where people make choices on on the flavours that they like, we know a hell of a lot of people love the flavour of beer, which is why they choose beer over other alcoholic uh, categories. And likewise, in, in, in situations where they've got a choice and they're looking for a uh, refreshment, we think that the taste of beer stacks up really well versus the alternative. And we also kind of hear that a lot of those alternatives, by their very nature, are actually quite sweet and sugar-driven, where this isn't, right? And so that's, that's, our, that's our belief. And I think, to your point, you know, our confidence from that comes that in over, uh, overseas, in markets where this product exists, you know, in the likes of Canada and US and, and even throughout Europe, it has been a success. And it's been a success because they've been able to be uh, able to create and replicate the true flavour of a beer in a, you know, 0.0% um, alcoholic kind of product offering. 
And I think that's been a big barrier for us in the past in this market is we haven't been able to deliver on that beer flavor in an in a way that really uh, in an authentic way that taps into the experience that that people are drinking when they go and and have a beer that flavor that they love. We haven't been able to deliver on that, but now we have this product and through advancements in brewing. Uh, uh, technology, we've been able to now get a product that actually tastes great. And for us, we're, you know, that, that's where our confidence comes from, is that we believe that people love the taste of beer, and this delivers against the taste and flavour of beer that they're used to and they love. So why wouldn't they drink it in occasions uh, up against other non-alcoholic beverages uh, when they've got the choice? So what markets did you look at when you were looking at developing the beer? What markets did you look at that gave you the confidence? Because this hasn't been an insubstantial investment. This isn't just uh, CUB pioneering a new style of beer. You've actually had to retool at the breweries to, uh, to, to, yep. to, to, to create the infrastructure to take the alcohol out of this beer. So you've obviously got a, a high degree of confidence that this investment is worthwhile. Where did you look to um, uh, markets that had a similar drinking culture that had picked up this style of beer? Yeah, US, US, I mean, in terms of similar drinking culture, US and Canada, uh, the, the, the relative success of this product in US and Canada gave us confidence that success could be replicated uh, in our market. I think in Canada, it's kind of up around circa 5% of the beer category in terms of, you know, uh, uh, zero alcohol beers, which, you know, in a pretty uh, large category, that, that's uh, kind of a reasonably significant um, uh, opportunity for us that we got confidence in that we could take in this market. So, yeah, the US and Canada were the two lead markets that we looked at and thought, you know what, if it works over there with consumers, what are the, you know, why wouldn't it work in Australia uh, if we could get the, if we could get the flavour right? And that's why we made the investment in the technology that you're talking about. We essentially brew a beer as you normally would brew a beer, and then we extract the alcohol out. Uh, previously, essentially, we've we've gone into diluting beer which creates a, a more of a watered-down flavour profile where this really delivers that kind of uh, malty characteristic of beer and full-flavoured characteristic of beer that, that people love, right? And, and that's, as I said before, where our confidence comes from is in the quality of the, the flavour profile of, of this product. We think it's excellent. So does the US and Canada have a mid-strength beer market? Because Australia is one of the few countries in the world I understand or one of the strongest you know that that you know 3.5 percent alcohol um, market so much that we've seen uh, beers like Corona or brands like Corona pioneer their brands over here um, which provides that nice balance between lower alcohol for people that don't want to drive or people that need to get on with their day and having a beer flavor yep. does, does Canada have that same sort of mid step down? No, they don't. Uh, they don't. I don't profess to be an expert in that in that market. But that that question that you raise is a question we asked ourselves as well. In a in a category, and as you know, Matt, we, you know we've been invested heavily uh, into uh, more moderate forms of beer in terms of ABV, and, and Great Northern is a is a, an excellent example of the success around that. And th- you know those categories don't exist like in the in Canada like they exist in Australia. So we were well aware of that, and it was one of the considerations that we had. But in reality, if you take that lens to say when people are are buying a mid-strength beer 
uh, whether they know it is a mid-strength or, or not, right? But they are, they are uh, taking, making a decision to moderate for a variety of different reasons, right? Uh, our, our view is that this is a separate opportunity to that. We're targeting this product for consumers who have a need where they don't want any alcohol at all, okay? So that, that is, and we believe that that size of the prize is still large enough uh, for us to be successful in. And again, when you come back to the simple proposition behind that is, which is to offer beer drinkers the opportunity to drink a, a great tasting beer, but with, uh, without the alcohol on occasions where they don't want that alcohol, that to us is a different choice decision they're making than choosing a light beer or a mid-strength beer, where they are still actually, you know, they, they, they are still aware that there's alcohol in the product and they're, they're, that's part of the decision hierarchy. We're actually targeting people who don't want alcohol in their beer on completely different occasions. So that's why, yes, we were completely aware of, of the different dynamics in terms of the reduced alcohol segments and the size of those between, let's say, Canada and Australia. Um, but And we went into making this decision, that investment, with that in mind. But we still think there's a big enough size of prize for us to go out and expand what we think are the amazing flavour characteristics of beer into occasions that you uh, don't traditionally drink beer in and essentially don't want alcohol in. Um, and a great example of that is, you know, at, at work, at lunchtime, when you're popping out to get, whether it be a hamburger or a sandwich or whatever else you're getting, you know, like when you when I go for that occasion at lunchtime, I don't want alcohol on that occasion, but I do want refreshment. So why, why wouldn't I choose a beer-flavoured refreshment if it delivers exactly or very close to exactly the same experience I get when uh, when I get when I'm in a pub or when I'm at home drinking my favorite beer. So that that's the opportunity we're targeting. Um, and that's why we think it can still be a success, regardless of the fact that we have a more developed reduced alcohol category in Australia in Australia than we do in the, the US or Canada to your point. Okay. Um, now talk to me about because it's a it's a naturally brewed uh, beer that then has the alcohol flashed off um, as Scott Vincent explained to us. Um, yeah. Talk talk me through the so does that mean that the the kilojoules is right down compared to mainstream beers? Yeah, I haven't got those details. I'm happy to follow up with you and get them um, from from Scotty, who's probably uh, closer to that than than I am. I mean, we're not marketing it as a, a low kilojoule uh, product, and and I don't think it falls into that. Um, that category, Maddie. So I have to get back to you on the, okay. the details around the, the Kildjubees. What I can tell you is that comparatively to, to if you like, let's call it uh, full-strength soft drinks, or uh, it has significantly less sugar, in fact, around about 10 times less sugar than your standard non-diet soft drink, right? Yep. So for people that are concerned about their sugar intake, this is a good option when compared to full-strength soft drink, so to speak. So so you're not really targeting that functional beverage market, you know, like low-carb beers, where um, as, as brand manager for a low-carb beer, you would have all of those details at your fingertips because that's a big part of the selling proposition. Yep, correct. No, I mean, that, that's exactly right. That's why I, I, you know, you know I'm, um, that's why my, my, my answer to that is essentially this isn't a, a low-carb proposition that we're 
extent we're driving, we're driving a, a flavour and refreshment uh, proposition uh, as, an, as an alternative to um, other uh, non-alcoholic beverages. The, I guess our point of difference, given the, the natural kind of nature of, of beer, as you know, and the, the four kind of ingredients that go into it, that one of the one of the things that that we've got as a competitive advantage is the fact that we are low in sugar compared to that soft drink competitive set that people choose on that occasion that we're targeting. So the low sugar comparison point is part of the strength and part of if you like our our sell story to consumers, but not the low jewel side. Okay, so. Talk me through the marketing strategy that you're going to be adopting. In Germany, we've seen beers like Erdinger. They've sponsored the Hawaii Ironman, I believe, and it's almost sold as an isotonic sports drink because it's got all of the goodness of a naturally brewed uh, you know, of, of malt and hops and yeast without the alcohol. Um, how are you going to be pitching yep. uh, Carlton Zero? Yeah, so yeah, unashamedly and very single-mindedly, our focus, which I think is consistent with what I've been saying, so far in our chat is, you know, we believe, you know, you know, Matt, if I ask you this question, um, what would be the biggest barrier to you choosing a non-alcoholic beer? What would your answer to that be? Oh, uh, the, the lack of alcohol. <laughs> you, you're always so obtuse. What would your second, what would your second answer be, Matt? Flavor. Correct. Exactly. Well, you got a second time around. That was good. Yeah, we got there. So <laughs> okay. when we, when we, when we, when, when we speak to consumers, the biggest barrier that we believe exists, is, and, I, and I think this comes from people's experience as well as a bit of myth, is that they go, no, don't they, you know, and, and using consumer language, their response is, don't they taste shit? You know, that's what they say to us, right? When we, when we introduce the concept of zero alcohol um, beers or 0.0% alcohol, alcohol beers, they say, don't they taste shit, right? We believe that, that flavour um, or taste is the biggest barrier that we have to overcome. So both our messaging, which will be uh, very direct around telling people that essentially um, we've rewritten the rules around zero alcohol products, uh, zero alcohol beers, and that you can now have a great tasting zero alcohol beer will be our primary message. So that's what you'll be seeing out there from a communication perspective. And then that will be supported with a very large-scale sampling campaign. So uh, when you try to overcome flavour barriers, there's no substitute to liquid on lips, right? Uh, and that's essentially the other key part of our, our marketing strategy. Okay. There, there was a, I saw there was a taste test conducted by, I think it was the Daily Telegraph, um, who, who, who broke the news. Was that something that you guys sponsored? Was that part of that, that campaign um, of, of getting beer in hand so people can try it and assess for themselves what a no-alcohol beer tastes like? Well, I think yesterday, I mean, I think yesterday we got almost as much publicity as um, our politicians have been getting over the last kind of week or so. <laughs> and to be honest with you, I think, that, I think the Australian public were more interested in talking about uh, our, the launch of Carlton Zero than they were uh, talking about what was going on in Canberra. And I think they, they were... It was, it was kind of a nice relief to them to have something uh, more interesting to, to, to talk about. But, yeah, so, you know, we have obviously uh, engaged the media to, to open the conversation. To be honest with you, it wasn't a very hard conversation to start. It, 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 it appears that this is a massive amount of – I mean, we know Australians, you know, beer is part of uh, our, our culture in uh, Australia and, and people are 
fascinated it, love it. it you know, it's there. There, um, it's it's great to work in the beer category in this country, and it just started such great conversation and and interesting de- debate. So really, it took off in the media, and and everyone wanted to talk to us about about this product. And there were some some different kind of taste tests that that uh, went on, but overwhelmingly, I mean, you read the uh, media as much as I I do, man. You're part of it. The response we've got, we've got has been really positive, and we were. From a flavour perspective, we're massively confident that this product stacks up, right? So, uh, and I encourage any of your listeners to go and get it, uh, drink it cold, and you know, close your eyes, and I think you're going to have a a pretty kind of rewarding beer experience when you drink this product. And that simply hasn't been the case with products like this that have been on the market for some time in this marketplace. And you know, like our job is to try and re-educate people that you can take, you can have a great tasting 0.0% beer. Um, and that's kind of um, what we've been telling the media. But really the, the, the acid hits the road when people get to trial the product. And that will be the largest part of our marketing campaign that you refer to is getting liquid on lips. And we're very confident when people taste it, they'll be pretty uh, uh, surprised and impressed in terms of what it delivers on, because we think it delivers on that beer flavour experience. Now, you're something of the uh, the athlete yourself. Are we going to see a lot of uh, middle-aged men in Lycra uh, being targeted for this sort of beer? Uh, it's kind of, um, uh, I, I would, I would, I, I like to use the word athlete about myself. I'm not sure it's not true, <laughs> but the, um, the answer to that question is, I think it's one of those occasions that we'll be drunk in, right? Like, when you're going for a ride, let's just say, and you want some refreshment, right? Uh, and it's kind of, you've been riding for three or four hours and it's uh, like, this is the sort of product that you could turn to as an alternative to a soft drink. Um, and, you know, it's a great example of an occasion where alcohol wouldn't be appropriate, but this type of product uh, is appropriate. And really, at the end of the day, all we're giving people is more choices to have a beer alternative without the alcohol on occasions that they haven't had before. So, no, we're not marketing this as a sports product, and I am aware that's been done um, overseas, but that won't be uh, the focus of the way we market it here in Australia. It'll very much be about appealing to beer lovers and giving and talking about the flavour that this delivers on occasions they're not used to drinking um, beer on, and we'll have some fun with that along the way under this kind of campaign idea that we've rewritten the rules of of what you think uh, a zero alcohol beer would taste like. Excellent. Well, Matt, I'm looking forward to seeing, I I have to say I'm sceptical that Australians want to drink a no alcohol beer, but I uh, will look forward to, with great anticipation, to seeing how it goes. So, Tim Avadia, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Brews News once again. And, uh, mate, hopefully we'll get to have a beer next time that we chat. Yeah, that'd be great. Thanks for having me. I'll speak soon. And that was CUB's Director of Classic Brands and Local Premium, Tim Avadia. And that was Brews News for the Week. As always, if you enjoy the show, please let us know. We've been overwhelmed by the letters that you've been sending in over the last few weeks. And this week's Letter of the Week comes from Shen Lin. Shen Lin, I've uh, edited this down a little bit um, because it's only me and I've don't want too much of uh, Matt uh, on one podcast. But the letter says, As a long-time beer enjoyer, short-time brewer, I recently stumbled upon the Brews News website. I read the podcast description, 
This week's Beer is a Conversation with Pink Boots founder Terry Farrandorf is so epic it needed to be broken into three parts, and I thought I'd give it a listen. I'm so glad the first podcast I chose to listen was Matt's Chat with Terry, as she is an absolute legend, and I've continued to enjoy the Brews News podcast and emails. The most poignant point that Terry makes in my humble opinion, is underlined by her nonchalant response to Matt's question regarding the male-dominated industry. I never really noticed that there weren't very many women in the beer industry. It was just me and my mates, me and my brewing friends. This attitude is one I would like to see more, not only in brewing, but in other fields of life. Thanks to the Brews News team for introducing me to Terry in Pink Boots. As I mentioned, I've continued to enjoy the podcasts. I listened to Brews News Live with Kim Jordan today and loved it just as much. I'd also like to thank you for my Brews News emails. I read them and appreciate the job section. It reassures me there are jobs out there centered around the greatest thing in the world, beer. Keep up the brilliant work. Thank you, Shen. And there is a six-pack of great Australian beer coming to you from our good friends at Beer Cartel. And don't forget... All letter writers receive a Brews News bar blade, and the letter of the week also does receive that six-pack of great Australian beer from our great mates at Beer Cartel. Now, if I can ask one flavour, uh, uh, now if I can wa- ask one favour, while you can sponsor the show and give us a little bit of your hard-earned money uh, through a link in the show notes, you don't have to. It does help us out, but we would really appreciate it if you could take the time to leave a review on iTunes. It costs nothing but time, and it really does help other people like Shanlin to find us. Or else, give us a shout-out on social media and let people know that you enjoyed the show, and they might too. Just tag us at Osbrews News. Next week, Pete will be back. So until then, thanks for listening, and don't forget that the best beer is your next one. And we're out. We're out.